Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the way your wisdom has called the body of Christ together. Even in a small church, Father, even in a fellowship like Oak Hill Bible Church, where we may see a small number of people, we may see a small building, we may see a small reach. The arm of the Lord, Father, we are told, is a reach that has no limit. And so we can feel confidence and we thank you, Father, for the encouragement that we have in knowing when we step out in faith to serve you in the ways you call us, mighty things can happen in the lives of the people we impact. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that it is to serve alongside you. And in the process, Father, of serving, we grow. By that growth, Father, we reflect you. We come now into the word for that same purpose, to grow and to learn so that we may reflect you in the world. So put our minds and our hearts, Father, squarely into the text of Scripture as it sits before us. And cause us, Father, to consider all that we hear carefully and thoughtfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a couple of weeks, so let me remind you where we've been in Genesis 31, picking up, as I said, verse 14. We just saw Jacob in the earlier verses of the chapter come before his wives, his two wives, and make a case to them that it was time to leave Laban's house, their father's house, the home that they've lived in together with Jacob for now 20 years working. And the way Jacob approached the wives was based on his own experience and the way God revealed this same truth to him. God appeared to Jacob God gave him instructions to pack up and move. Laban, God said, had turned against Jacob. Jacob had sensed that turn, that now Laban was no longer friendly to him the way he had been all along. And in the fact that Laban now was angry at Jacob's strength and his blessing and the way Jacob's flocks had grown and Laban's had decreased, Jacob had reason to feel like sooner or later Laban is going to turn on him and find some excuse to recover the lost herds to recover the wealth that had migrated, so to speak, from Laban to Jacob. But Jacob didn't want to leave without his wives, without his family. And as we discussed last time, he makes a passionate plea to them to see things the way he sees them, so that when he says we're leaving, he doesn't just have their obedience, he has their support. And so he pleads his case. Now, when we pick up today in verse 14, we're going to see the women's response to the pleading, to the arguments that Jacob made. Verse 14, Rachel and Leah said to him, do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. I think it's worth stopping to note how these women responded, but more importantly, how they came to their response. Jacob made this case to them in the previous verses really is a two part argument. And the two parts that Jacob made were first, the family situation was in jeopardy. So he began with the earthly, if you will, with their circumstances. And he said, Laban has taken notice of the fact that I have now taken all his wealth. He's now hostile to me. And so we have to concern ourselves with our circumstances. But if you remember, those circumstances were themselves God-derived. God himself made Laban's wealth migrate to Jacob. That's what we were told in the earlier verses of this chapter. 
So it's no surprise that Laban now is upset. It's by God's design that this outcome would happen. That's the first thing Jacob appeals to. We need to do this for our own sake. Then the second argument Jacob makes is that the Lord has called me to move. The Lord has told me it's time to go back. So really now it's just an issue of obedience to God. The call came in a dream. If you remember last time we taught, it was a dream in which God not only said it's time to leave, but he reminded Jacob that Jacob had made a vow to him as he left the land originally. And the vow was he would come back one day and he would tithe to God and to the Lord as a thanks for the Lord's protection. So Jacob now has really no choice but to leave in order to obey God. So those were the two arguments Jacob made. Now look at the response that the women make. They focus their response on those same two points, really. They start by noting that the inheritance and the wealth that they might have received as daughters of their father was no longer there anyway. They said, do we have any inheritance in our father's house? There's really two things working here in that comment. First, Laban would have expected the bulk of his wealth to be handed out as an inheritance to his sons. That was the culture of the day. Daughters, though they never received an inheritance in the culture, they did receive a dowry. You could argue that in some ways that a dowry was the female equivalent of the male inheritance. So a father would receive a bride price from the groom, and that became part of the father's wealth. But at the point where the marriage was actually consummated, when the wedding took place, the father would give to the daughters some kind of dowry, some kind of gift. If you remember that in this case, all they received was the handmaiden that each of them took at the time of the wedding. That's not really a dowry. That's not much of a dowry. Let me put it that way. What happened in Jacob's case, though, was a little different, a little interesting. Rather than Jacob come and make a payment to Laban in goods, he agreed to work it off, if you remember. So the wealth that Jacob transferred to Laban was the wealth of his labor, which had a great effect for Laban. Laban became very wealthy as a result of Jacob's work. But what these women say in their response is in verse 15, they say he has sold us and then notice and also entirely consumed our purchase price. So the wealth that was earned as a result of that time of labor is no longer in Laban's household. It's gone. Laban has used it in the course of everyday life. And then, of course, some of it has been transferred into Jacob's wealth. So the women are saying From their point of view, we have nothing here for us materially. We have no inheritance and dad has taken our dowry and spent it all anyway. Then they further say he has treated us as foreigners in the sense that we were sold to Jacob, which would not have been the normal practice. Normally, you would not agree to let your daughters marry another man and have him work it off like a payment plan. And that was uncustomary. So that was an offensive thing for them. So they First, acknowledge their circumstances, and then secondly, they acknowledge God has spoken. We need to do what God has told you to do. They see the hand of God here, and they recognize the need to obey. Now, there's an interesting pattern here, which I think is customarily the pattern that many of us fall into when we're trying to follow God. I think it's customary for Christians to want to elevate the process of obedience into an entirely spiritual realm. And idealistically, that's where it would always be. The realm that says, I'll be going about my day, and then out of the blue, God will just zap me somehow spiritually, and into my head will flow thoughts of God's will and God's intentions, and then I will just snap to it. I'll immediately walk in the will of God, and from here forth, I do as God has directed, right? Idealistically, wouldn't we love to do that? Wouldn't we all want to do that? 
It's helpful to remember that even Moses, who had a burning bush placed in front of him, argued with God for a little while before he finally decided to follow suit. So a clear and unmistakable vision of God by itself is not necessarily enough to cause us to obey, though it should be. But God being God and knowing who we are as fleshly men is good to give us more reason than simply a revelation from himself. Not that he should need to, mind you, but he's good to. Think of Jacob for a moment. Jacob has been told it's time to leave. But he had already, Jacob had already understood that Laban was no longer friendly toward him, that his circumstances were negative, and therefore it prompted him to want to leave. Similarly, the women now have seen the same exact pattern. And so their ultimate conclusion, just like Jacob's ultimate conclusion, is the right one. Let's obey God. But we would be foolish, we'd be naive not to acknowledge that they got there through a couple of steps. And one of those steps, importantly, was taking stock of their circumstances and saying, you know, God has made it clear to me this is no longer a place to go. And I can see it for myself. We have phrases we use in the Christian context for this sort of thing. We talk about God opening doors and closing doors. And that's usually an indication or a reference to the way our lives will change around us in such a fashion that we'll see that this isn't something we do anymore. And now here's something new we should do. And then somewhere in the course of that recognition, we'll feel a peace about it. And then we'll come to conclude, well, God is confirming for me this is how I'm supposed to behave or this is how I'm supposed to think. And the two work together. That is not, in my experience, a sign that we are weak in faith. Though relying on worldly circumstances exclusively for your indication of what you should or shouldn't do, that is weak. But the combination of the two is actually a fairly mature process, a fairly mature behavior within the body of Christ. And Scripture reflects that time and time and time again. Jacob himself and the women had to see first their circumstances and then see God in order to feel confident they had to do what they had to do. I have stories, and time won't permit me to to bore you with them, but I have stories in my own walk of times when I moved or changed jobs or sold a home or bought a home, in which case I can look back and I can say to myself, God wanted me to do that. And perhaps at some point in the middle of those decisions, I sensed that myself. But that's not usually where I started. Usually what started me was the job I had was terrible. And the promotion opportunities were gone or the home we had was no longer appropriate for us. There was something about our life that started my wife and I saying, and usually my wife first, saying, we need to change something. And then you take a step. And I think that's one of the places in which maturity in the faith really starts to help us in regard to this is is the ability to take that first step, trusting that God will show us the next one. And when we took those first steps It all seemed to just fall into place after that. And we could see God's hand confirming these women and their husband have come to that same kind of moment in their life where the circumstances of everyday life have pointed them in a direction. And then God has affirmed that view or given them confidence to go forward in that view because it was by his hand that those circumstances came about. That's wonderful confidence for you in trying to understand how to follow God. So what begins here now is a personal exodus, Jacob's personal exodus out of Laban's family. It's a fascinating story. There are some parallels, actually, to Israel's exodus, though I don't think this is meant to be a picture of it. And there is more intrigue here than meets the eye. In fact, there's a point in the story we'll get to here this morning that's actually a bit misconstrued by the average Bible student, at least in my experience, because it's somewhat culturally 
dependent in order to find the right explanation, the right interpretation. So let's look at this. And as we go through this section, I want you to remember what the main theme of Jacob's story is. We've been repeating this all the way through. It is that God's sovereignty over all things working through the sin of people. That though he is sovereign and does all things according to his will and in his timing, nonetheless, in the lives of everyday people, he is working through their sin at times to bring about those outcomes. And that continues to happen here. The other thing I want to point out is Jacob is showing some helpful signs here. He's he's starting to look more and more like a man that trusts in the Lord and depends on him. But before we get ahead of ourselves in that, take note of the fact that the old Jacob is still there. By the way, his wives are there with him. Look in verse 17. Then Jacob arose and put his children and his wives upon camels. And he drove away all his livestock and all his property, which he had gathered, his acquired livestock, which he had gathered in Padamaran, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey. And he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. So Jacob aims to make basically a midnight escape from Laban, from his household. He would know, obviously, that Laban wants Jacob to remain there indefinitely. And now the reasons are a little different. Beforehand, he wanted Jacob around because Jacob made him rich by Jacob's influence in the shepherding. Now that Jacob has taken most of that wealth, Laban wants him to stick around because he doesn't want to see the wealth leave. He doesn't want Jacob to take it with him. Jacob knows all this. And knowing it, he sneaks off. Now, the scriptures give us a very, very clear interpretation or analysis of what Jacob's doing. Because in verse 20, we're told Jacob deceived Laban. Jacob deceived the old Jacob there. The one that his name implies, the deceiver, the trickery of Jacob is still at work. He doesn't tell Laban he's leaving. Now, this is a wonderful place to go for parents, especially because here you have in the scriptures a nice little nugget and a nice little example of deception through omission. Deceiving by not telling somebody something rather than strictly telling a lie. You can deceive, which means you can sin by what you don't say. Under certain circumstances. And that's Jacob's situation here. He knew that the proper thing to do was to tell Laban he was leaving. He had worked in this guy's house for 20 years. He's married to the guy's daughters. He owns most of Laban's wealth at this point. You think Laban might be interested to know he's leaving? Of course he would. And Jacob knew that. In fact, under the cultural requirements of the day, it was probably legally required that he tell Laban he's leaving because he was indentured to Laban under their agreement. And so as a hired man, he can't just quit. I mean, even in our culture today, as bad as we are at this, we still have some modicum of etiquette. You don't generally just walk out on the job without telling someone that you're quitting. And if you're really kind about it, you give them a couple weeks notice, right? Well, it's somewhat like that here, only more strict. So here you have Jacob flat out taking advantage of Laban, at least to the extent that he withholds news that he should have given him. He was deceiving him. James's instructions in his letter examine this problem in verse 17 of chapter 4, 417 of James. James says, 
Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Jacob knew the right thing to do. Tell Laban you're leaving. He does not do it. He sins. And verse 20 tells us he sinned. Remember that, folks. We don't need the Bible to lay down godly instructions for every single facet of everyday life in order to understand what sin is. That's the power of James 4.17 in the life of a Christian. The power of that verse is to remind us that God can impress upon our heart through specific revelation, through general counsel out of Scripture, through godly counsel from another person, or just through the everyday rules and etiquette of society in general. All of those things can be God's instrument to explain to us what is the right thing to do. And when we know that, but don't do it, we can't turn to others and say, well, nothing in here says I can't do this. Or no one told me in the Bible I had to do that. Forget that. You had a heart that knew by God's instruction what to do and you did not do it. That's sin. It's a great reminder by, for parents, especially not that we aren't doing this ourselves as, as adults, but I think our kids really struggle with this sometimes. They, they struggle with the legalities of everyday life because they're used to rules. That's how we generally raise kids, and that's helpful. But at a point as they mature, especially as believing children, we want to move them beyond rules to a leading of the Spirit as their main instrument for knowing what is godly. Through the instruction of the Word and other insight that God provides, but at the end of the day, listening to the Spirit and following that guidance. Jacob here knew the truth, and he did not do it. Once again, relying on deception. You know, his obedience to the Lord here has this side to it in which he obeys, but it's like he has to help. You know, he has to add, he has to take deception, his strength, if you will, which is not meant as a compliment. And he adds that to just purely walking in obedience. What we'll never know from Jacob's life, what we'll never have an opportunity to know is what would God have done had he not tricked his father into getting the birthright? If he had not tried to trick or deceive Laban under these circumstances, how would God have still found a way to do the right thing by Jacob? Because we know God would have done the right thing by Jacob. Wouldn't that have been an interesting story to watch how God would have worked it apart from his deception? But we won't know. Now, that's not to say that somehow something's missing in the record of God. All I'm saying is in our own lives, the same question would apply when we rely on deception or we rely on any sin to form an outcome that God himself is at work doing in our life, we'll never get to see God at work in the way he was prepared to work without our complicating problem. Well, then, back to the text. Rachel now makes a very interesting move of her own. And this is the issue I was referring to earlier when I said there's a bit of a a misconception in many people's minds about what's really happening here. Laban is out, we're told, shearing the flock. Now, in, in days in which this took place, the process of shearing the flock was a multi-day event. It's even a, a fairly involved event today, even with mechanical machinery doing the work. But in that day, it's all done by hand. It took a while. So he's out with the flock for some period of time. That gave Rachel the opportunity here. She takes the opportunity to go into Laban's home and remove the household idols. Now, when we read that she went in and take them, our first thought is, is she still an idol worshiper? Did she want the blessing of these idols? Did she want the protection of these idols? Well, that's possible. But knowing how they fit in the culture and knowing what we've already seen her saying to Jacob concerning God and the need to follow God, 
There's no reason to assume that she wanted them for religious purposes. The more likely explanation is she wanted them for the ability to have leverage and control over Laban, knowing that they were escaping and they knew he would not be happy about that. First thing you should know is if your God can be kidnapped, you've got a bad God. You've got a God that is not probably the right one. But putting that aside, pagan worshipers in this day had as a tendency, had household idols. This was typically how the culture worked. And they would adopt these idols almost as mascots. So different tribes, different clans, different households would have different pagan gods. This is where scripture mentions gods of man's own making. That's the the notion here. Scripture refers to the way men would choose their own gods, form them according to their own desires, and make them their own. Now, the form they actually took was figurines, like Star Wars character, two or three inches high, out of wood, sometimes out of stone. They became associated with the home so closely, they would actually identify the home. They were considered the patron god of the family. And these little figurines were the idols of that family. Quite often you would inscribe the name of the god with your name on these idols. And sometimes the family would take its name from the name of the idol. Now, the person who owned them physically was the patriarch. So in this case, that's Laban. And they were passed down to the next patriarch. Now, remember, we've talked about the blessing and the birthright in here already. There was always one son who, as the oldest, received the greater portion of the inheritance But that oldest son also received the patriarchal authority in the family. So they became head honcho within the clan in the next generation. That son would inherit these idols. So the idols became a symbol of family authority as well. Whoever held these idols owned the authority over the family. In fact, you see evidence of this in ancient writing. There's a a set of ancient writings, historical writings called the Nuzi tablets and they come from Mesopotamia from around the time of Abraham and they represent our best record of what law and custom was in Abraham's day in the region in which he lived. They're not scripture, of course, but they're a nice cross reference for us to get a sense of what the culture did in his day. In the Newsy tablets, there are instructions that specifically say whoever possesses the family idols could lay claim to being the legitimate heir in the family. So whoever possesses these idols could take ownership of Laban's estate after his death. If Jacob and Rachel showed up after Laban's death holding the family idols, they could take ownership of the property of Laban. That's the real threat for her having these idols. She's taken the keys to the kingdom. And actually, as we'll see here a little later in the text, that's exactly how these items play. They become leverage for them in their fight, in their contest with Laban. Regardless of her reasons for taking them, we know her actions here are wrong for all the same reasons that her husband's actions were wrong. He deceived. She stole. If you and I had never known God, never studied the Bible, were completely ignorant of who the God of Abraham was or who Jesus was, and we picked up this book, the Bible, and started reading it, relatively speaking, we're just at the very beginning. We don't know a lot about God at this point overall at least as far as the text of Scripture goes. So at this early stage, Moses is still trying to teach the reader about God and about his character and nature, and he's doing it by showing us examples of God's response to men when men sin in the face of his goodness. Think about Jacob. Think how often Jacob, and now Rachel, think how often this family has taken the goodness of God and in a sense thrown it back in his face by their tendency to sin anyway 
despite his promises. Now, to a, an early reader of Scripture, you might come to this point of the Scripture and, and step back and say, I wonder what this God is going to do. How much of this is he going to put up with? How long before he says, you're not worthy of my promises? You're not good enough. I'm not going to work with someone who, who does this kind of thing over and over again. Remember how it started in the first part of Genesis? You have God and the garden. And then at the point where man sins in the garden, God shows us that sin has consequences by taking man and woman and setting them outside of the garden, putting them in a new world that's under a curse and leaving us with the understanding that ah, you cannot sin with impunity. So God is a God who responds to sin. But then later in the story of Noah, the world is in worldwide rebellion, horrendous rebellion. God then judges the world through a flood. But he promises to a family that if they were to build an ark, God will save this godly family from that judgment. And so now we learn God is a God who executes judgment against sin, but he offers mercy to those who fear him. And now in this stage of the story, we watch God make covenants with men, promises to men, promises that had no requirements. When God showed up with Abraham and then later Isaac and Jacob, he said, I will do these things. He didn't say you should do anything. He didn't say if you do anything. He said, here it is. God makes covenants with men. But these men, Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, they have sinned over and over again. Abraham had his sins. Isaac repeated dad's sins. Jacob's got a whole new set of sins. He's on his own making this up as he goes. And the family just keeps doing these things in the face of a God who has made covenants promising good things to them. What's this God going to do? Well, you know what we're learning now? That God is a God who will not break his covenant regardless of what men do. That even our own sin does not cause God to go back on his promises. That he is faithful even when we are faithless, as Paul says. God is prepared to show Jacob a better way. He's not ignorant of Jacob's sin. He will deal with Jacob's sin, but he is not going to go back on his word. Now, friends, that is a view of God that no other religion has ever offered to men before. Because none other had the truth. None other knew the true living God. They were all describing gods made in our own image. And our image, our view is, I'll be nice to you so long as you're nice to me. And sooner or later you wear out my patience. And when I've had enough, that's it. And so we make gods who think and act exactly the same way. And then the true God comes along and says, my ways are higher than man's ways. And we are faced with something we've never seen before. So Jacob now reaches to Gilead, which is directly east of Bethel on your map, just across on the east side of the Jordan. He's made it almost all the way home. In fact, the way the text makes it sound, he crosses the Euphrates and he sets his mind, it says, sets his face toward Gilead. On a map, that means he crossed the Arabian Desert. He went the fast and hard way. That shows you how quickly he wanted to move away from Laban rather than going the, the Fertile Crescent, which would have been an easier route, but longer. And then in verse 22, the confrontation begins. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days journey. And he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream of the night and said to him, be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban caught up with Jacob. 
Now, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. And then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs and with timber and lyre and did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Let's take a moment and look at how this sets up. Next week, we'll really finish it. It starts by telling us that it's taken three days for Laban to reach Jacob and then catch up to him. I find this to be a bit ironic and actually a bit humorous, because do you remember how the most recent employment phase between Jacob and Laban, how that began when they made the agreement that Jacob would get all the speckled and the black and so on. Well, remember what Laban did in response to that in order to prevent Jacob from having any of his herd? He gave all of his animals to his sons, remember, and he sent them on three days journey away so that they would be three days removed from the camp of Jacob. So here's Jacob camped out now three days away from Laban. Well, that's why it takes three days for Laban to find out he's gone. Because as soon as he packs up and leaves, somebody in Laban's household says, Laban's going to want to know about this. He has to travel three days to get to him. Then he tells him, now that puts Laban that much further behind. Isn't that interesting? I find even in that detail an example of how God can take the sin of men, even in the simplest detail, and turn it to the advantage of those he loves, those who have been called according to his purpose. That's what God is at work doing, even in this. Because now Jacob finds himself in a place close to home, in somewhat of friendly territory, where Laban is stretched thin, far from his own resources, in a position of weakness, at least relatively speaking. They finally meet up here in the hill country of the Gilead. Now, Moses offers no commentary whatsoever on what might be motivating Laban here to catch up and talk to Jacob. But is there really any mystery about it? Do we need Moses to tell us why? It's obvious even from Laban's own words. Laban wants to kill Jacob. His point to come here would have been, had God not intervened, would have been to kill Jacob. And under the culture, he could have done it justly. He would have been doing something that was in keeping with the law and the custom of the day. He would have killed the man. He would have taken back his daughters and all the property. Problem solved as far as Laban was concerned. So Jacob is now confronted by Laban, but only after the Lord has given Laban this dream now, this is the first time we've seen the Lord appear to Laban in any way. This is the first time we know that God has actually ever spoken to Laban personally in any form. But it's the second time in Scripture we've seen an unbeliever receive God's revelation. The first was Abimelech, the king who had taken Sarah as his wife. God appears in a dream and says, don't touch her. Well, that's the first time. Here's the second time. It's a really remarkable moment because in this example, like the one before, we have a proof that saving faith isn't simply a matter of knowing God. Saving faith isn't strictly, I know God exists. And also, it's not based on hearing from God. You can hear from God self-evidently and still not have saving faith. Though Laban heard God and knew God and actually acknowledges that God exists, he remains outside God's mercy. Why? Well, because he has not received a promise from God and then 
rested in that promise by faith, because that's the definition of faith. Think about Hebrews chapter 11, where we get the classic definition of faith in which it is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's resting in promises of the future, promises that God has delivered. Well, there's been no such promise delivered and there's been no such faith invested by Laban in that promise. Therefore, there's no salvation being offered to Laban. But nonetheless, he acknowledges God is a God that exists. God has power and Laban respects that power. But that's not the same as saving faith. You get no credit for acknowledging the obvious that God exists and has power. Now, what God gives to Laban here is a command, a kind of strange command. He says, you can't say anything good. Or bad against Jacob. Now, you might have expected God to say something like this. Don't lay a hand on him. You cannot hurt him. Leave him alone. Something to that effect. Or at the very least, you might have just heard him say, don't say anything bad. But don't say anything good. I can't compliment the guy. What does it mean? I can't say anything good. It seems by the context that what God is intent on doing here is protecting Jacob, not only from Laban, but from himself. From the prospect that Laban could not only win him back through force, but also through charm. That there might be some effect by Laban to cause him to want to return by offering him something, by enticing him with something. He wants Laban to stay out of it, is the point. To refrain from having any influence on Jacob. Because I want Jacob to go through some things. I don't want you to relieve the opportunity for him to go forward because I need to work with him through this process. So Laban catches up. Look what he says to Jacob. You deceived me. All right. Well, that's true. And now it's Laban's turn to deceive, because then Laban says, if you had only told me, we would have had a party. I would have sent you off in style. Right. He basically accuses him, Jacob here, of being the cruel one, the insensitive one, the unkind one. And after living with Laban for 20 years, you know Jacob is not fooled by this show. There's no way he would have been fooled by it. But because of the culture, the show must go on. So they have this face-saving little game here in which Laban has to pretend to be the offended one and to be the one who would have done the right thing. Now, clearly by his own words, Laban would have treated Jacob here very poorly. He would have harmed him, he says. I I have the power, he says, to cause you harm. The word in Hebrew for harm is ra, R-A. It literally means evil. Or disaster. He's implying death. But God stopped him. Now here again, here's this strange dilemma for us. We have a man who does not have saving faith in the living God, but has enough concern about God's power that he obeys God's warning. Here's evidence that unbelievers can and do hear and obey God. Now in this case, Laban hears it overtly. He even credits it to be from God. But not through a personal relationship with God but rather simply by a recognition that something of power has revealed itself to him. This is the meaning of James again. Back to James for a minute. In James chapter 2, verse 19, when he says that you believe that God is one, well, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. You want credit from God for acknowledging he exists, that he is one? And then he says sarcastically, well, you do well. You join the demons. Because the demons know that he exists, And they're so confident of who he is and of his power that they shudder at the thought. They are fearful knowing that God can bring judgment upon them in some future day. That is not saving faith. Only through a covenant, through a promise God has extended that we have believed in by faith is true salvation available. And that itself 
is what we look for as a test of faith and salvation, not the mere acknowledgement that God exists. One of the phrases of the culture today that annoys me to no end is people who call themselves spiritual. You've all heard this. This has seemed to be faddish now. I didn't remember hearing this until recently, but it's become of age. Do you go to church? No, I'm just a very spiritual person. What does that mean? When you're trying to get a sense of who they are and you ask penetrating questions, the answers that come back are these amorphous responses that are really designed to just put the issue to rest and let the conversation move on to some other topic, usually. While at the same time, though, making them feel good as if they're protected by that notion, as if being spiritual moves them into the camp of the the ones who will be okay on the day of their death. Well, I can go deeper than just being spiritual. You can acknowledge that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. You can acknowledge that that God has power, including power to judge you, which is what the demons acknowledge. And you still have a step yet to go if you want to be with him in his presence in heaven. You have to take a promise he delivered to the world to Christ. You have to accept that that promise has validity and strength to save, and you have to rest in it. The promise being that Christ's death on the cross has the power to absolve all sin that you are responsible for and that he took that penalty in your place. If that's the promise you can accept by faith, then you are saved. God says in Genesis 28:15. remember from several chapters before, he says, behold, to Jacob, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's what we're seeing work out right now. We've said God is a God that keeps promises. God is a God who will work through the sin of men because that's what he has. But here's a man who has tested God time and time again. And even now in this last moment, as he escapes out of Laban's household, he deceives the man confronts him and says, truthfully, you deceived me. But God stepped in and said, nevertheless, you can't do anything to him. Why? Because of Genesis 28:15. Because God says, I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Should that encourage us to sin? Of course not. Is that an excuse for our sin? Well, heavens no. Should it give us comfort in the face of our sin? Absolutely. Not comfort that extends to thinking we won't see consequences, but comfort that knows that the relationship we have with God is stronger than anything in this life, including our own sin. As we come back next week, we'll look at how God deals with these sins along the way, but in the way he chooses in his own timing. And we'll watch his faithfulness continue. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace of Christ, the mercy that you showed us through his death on the cross. And most of all, Father, thank you for the promises you've extended and that we by faith may join in. Many of us have heard these things for many years and have the blessing of having walked with you for much of our lives. But can we ever hear it enough, Father, that for the days we have on this earth, you have called us to walk an obedient life with the sin that we bring with us, knowing, Father, that you can glorify us through any means necessary. You can glorify yourselves through us in any means necessary. We thank you, Father, for that privilege. We thank you, Father, for the knowledge that we are secure in you. We also ask, Father, that when we walk with you, you would be clear to show us the way. 
You would show us closed doors and open doors. You would call us so plainly that we could never miss it. Let us be faithful in our service to you, Father. For though we know our sin will never separate us from the love of God, nonetheless, Father, we want to be bound to you by our obedience. We want to not just have what we have by your promises, Father, but we want to show what we have to the world by reflecting Christ. Thank you, Lord, for these things and for the church that we can share them with. And bring us back next week with others with us, if it be your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.